From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is out this week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. I got a call early this morning. He said this was so great. And that's Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer describing to the New York Times Donald Trump's absolute elation at good press. And he, here's what he said. He said, do you watch Fox News? I said, not really. He said, they're praising you, meaning me. But he said, and your stations, meaning, I guess, MSNBC, CNN, are praising me. This is great. This following the president's surprise deal last week with Democratic leaders on the debt ceiling, which actually wasn't so much of a deal as it was an agreement to kick the deal down the road for three months. And while that may sound like a punt for the political press, it was a total game changer. When we come back, is Donald Trump declaring his independence or just going rogue? He is in many ways the first independent to hold the presidency since the advent of the current two-party system around the time of the Civil War. Trump is a former Democrat, and so it's almost like his natural uh, habitat is to deal with Democrats, but Republicans are just infuriated today. So thrilled was the president with the press attention, he scheduled a second date this week with Democratic leaders to discuss DACA and a poo-poo platter of other issues over Chinese food. Here's the view from Fox Business. President Trump is dining with the devil and his vampire bride as Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have agreed to break bread and suck blood with the president. President Trump had a taste of that sweet bipartisan nectar after making the short-term debt ceiling deal with Chuck and Nance, and now he's addicted. But as eager as the talking heads have been to cover each new plot twist, they seem decidedly less engaged in explaining just what those deals might mean. Take, for instance, the debt ceiling. For years, the media have treated the perennial debt ceiling debate like hurricane season. Is disaster heading to our shores? When will calamity strike? What's the projected damage? Often lost in the coverage, why we have to keep reliving this crisis in the first place. Zachary Carabell is head of global strategies at InvestNet. He's also author of The Leading Indicators, a short history of the numbers that rule our world. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brooke. Quick explainer, if you please. Step one, Congress passes a budget. Step two, it raises the debt ceiling to pay for it. But presumably our legislators have already made the hard choices in step one. So why do we have a step two? So the debt ceiling was created 100 years ago. We're like at the 100th anniversary of the Federal Reserve and the 100th anniversary of the debt ceiling. Until 1917, the United States didn't tend to run budget deficits. So it was a rare thing, almost only in times of war, that you took on debt. And because it was a rare thing, whenever Congress decided that the federal government needed to borrow money, it would just authorize a bond issuance. There was no budget that was over budget until 1917. And there weren't a lot of budgets after 1917. The Great Depression during World War II were exceptions. Mm-hmm. Now the government does borrow. There's a saying that the argument over the debt ceiling is basically legislative terrorism. It's been weaponized. By who? Well, it was first weaponized by the Republicans led by Newt Gingrich in 1995. So the first real hostage-taking situation, like change the budget or we'll shut down the government, was in 1995. Speaker Gingrich said he and his new Republican congressional majority would force me, the congressional Democrats, and the American people to accept their budget and their contract by bringing about a crisis in the fall, by shutting down the government and pushing America into default. 
There have been rumblings of it before, but it is primarily in modern history of modern means the last 20 years been a tool used by Republicans to force a discussion of cutting government spending. The debt ceiling as a tactic of a party to disrupt another party can certainly be effective. But when you are the governing party, i.e. the Republicans are now the governing party, the debt ceiling is a really inconvenient weapon for the minority voices within your own party to challenge you. So Paul Ryan's all for debt ceiling. We're not going to spend another dime and we're not going to borrow another dime until we cut spending. All for that when it's Republicans against Democrats. When it's Republicans against Republicans, the leadership isn't so fond of it. And now it's being used principally by the Tea Party caucus. But why are the Democrats in such a rush? So the goal for the Democrats was really keep this issue going because it will distract from other issues and it will be embarrassing. It is a marker whose only utility is to create political complications. Part of it is because over the past years, Congress has not passed a budget. We see budgets being passed where appropriations change. Right. But most of the budgets, certainly since 2008, have been continuing resolutions of the prior budget with some tweaking. We saw after 2013 with this thing sequestration, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning we can't agree what parts of the government we want to cut or augment spending on. So we're just going to cut everything across the board by 10 percent. You have not really had a unified budget. Little pieces have been passed here and there, continuing resolutions to other pieces, a total hodgepodge. So because Congress can't agree on a budget, the debt ceiling authorization becomes the proxy for spending discipline that they can't embed in the budget process. So if we're news consumers, what we hear, certainly from one side and sometimes from the other, is that spending is out of control. Uh, Giving the federal government more money would be like giving a cocaine addict, all right, more cocaine. It's certainly true that our aggregate debt is higher than it's ever been. It just passed $20 trillion. But the actual amount that we're paying to service that debt, which is the money that we spend annually, is lower than it was into the early 1980s, just because interest rates are so low. It's like a mortgage. I mean, it doesn't matter that you have a million-dollar mortgage or a $500,000 mortgage. It matters what your interest payments are on that mortgage. A 5% mortgage makes that really expensive, and a 2% mortgage makes it a lot less so. Same thing with the federal debt. You can argue about what cost would be unbearable, paying a percent and a half of your GDP on interest bearable and paying 3% not. Even if interest rates spiked, it's not as if our costs are going to go up 10x. Okay, so give me a sense of perspective here. Perspective in the media? Are you kidding? (laughs) Right now, what's our interest rate on the debt? It's between 2 and 3%. What was it 10 years ago? Four, four and a half, five. Before 2007. Interest rates peaked in 1982, more or less with some variability. They've just been coming down over the past 35 years. Right now, our debt exceeds the gross domestic product, how much value we produce over the course of a year. Again, some more perspective. How does that compare to, say, the 80s or the 90s? It's been creeping up year by year. There was some deficit reduction, as you know, under Clinton. But overall, our debt levels have been going up and up and up. Not all that debt is owed. You know, a lot of it's the government writing IOUs to itself. Some of it is kind of an accounting fiction. So we we borrow money from ourselves to pay ourselves. And the size of the debt doesn't matter? At some point, it matters. I'm simply saying we are way, way away from that point. Mm -hmm. And the Tea Party is saying we're way, way beyond that point. It doesn't seem as if the debt is the boogeyman that it was four or five years ago. 
Then the rhetoric around it and what we were doing to our children would just cause spontaneous combustion. When we see our nation destroying our children's future by settling with a debt they can't handle, we've got to do something about that. We can't mortgage our children's future on a mountain of debt. During the time when S&P downgraded the U.S. debt in 2011, there were other debates, 2011, 12, 13, where debt was on the top of the agenda when people were surveyed as their main concerns. That was very high. And I wrote pieces somewhat arguing we should look at the interest payments on the debt. We should look at the servicing, not the absolute level. Debt can be a tool if it's used wisely. And the amount of hate mail and anger that that generated in people. The joke at the time is I could write an article in favor of child pornography and I would have received less angry responses than I did suggesting that maybe the levels of absolute debt were not so critical to our future. I mean, I literally was called a hater of America, wanted to destroy the American future. And why not that kind of pushback now? To some degree, it's just cyclical. So healthcare some years is a huge deal, other years it's not. Terrorism, you know, rises or falls, climate change, same thing. Part of it is media cycle of no one story can gain traction for too long. I mean, the narrative does have to change. Even in the primaries with the Republicans, debt levels were not the issue. Oh, that's true. This really waned after 2014. You could say the Republicans gaining control of the House in such a commanding way. I also think the fact that the economy has stabilized. I mean, you can argue about how bad or good it is for many of us, but it's clearly stabilized over the past four or five years, which is an offsetting factor to the level of fear. American attitudes towards debt have been emotional for a long time, and and maybe they'll come to the fore again next year as Trump ratchets up the rhetoric about our dependency on others, right? China holds our debt, Mexico is stealing our jobs, you know, whatever the whatever the next wave of us and them is, debt can easily feed into that. So I wouldn't call it a day on this as being a source of hysteria. It's just been in abeyance. When you're watching the news, you know, annually during this time, what's the thing that makes you want to tear out your hair? Well, what hair there is, <laughs> the thing that aggravates me the most is we ought to be holding Congress much more accountable for not passing budgets. Dealing with the country's finances, deciding what to spend, is one of the central functions of the legislative body. So in a weird way, the debt ceiling prevents the hard work. So are you suggesting people just skip over the debt ceiling stories? Yeah. <laughs> There's no there there. But the minority who want to use it as a tool, like this is the only way in which the Freedom Caucus, the current group of Republicans who were elected on a government spending is out of control, debt is going to destroy us, we have to change this or else we're all going to collapse in the face of the Chinese or the banks or whomever else. This is the major point of leverage that that group has. There's already a fracture going on within the Republican Party. If you get rid of the debt ceiling right now, you really risk that fracture becoming outright civil war. But if you took politics out of it, it doesn't make any sense to have a debt ceiling. Yeah, if you took politics out of it, a lot of this wouldn't make sense. It would be kind of the, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you, you like, like the play? play. <laughs> All right, Zachary, thank you very much. Thank you. Zachary Carabell is author of The Leading Indicators, a short history of the numbers that rule our world. Coming up, what do medieval history and Taylor Swift have in common? This is On the Media.
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radiolab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Taylor Swift is a star of many faces. The darling of country music, Taylor Swift. The newly crowned princess of pop, Taylor Swift. Help Swift create the most powerful female social network of all time. You could make an argument that Taylor is the anti-Miley. She's also the forlorn damsel betrayed by former friend Katy Perry, victim of the scheming Kim and Kanye, the powerful leader of her girl squad, and as her latest hit, Look What You Made Me Do, would have you believe. I don't trust nobody and nobody trusts me. I'll be the actress starring in your bad dreams. But not white supremacist dreams. They think that, hey, you know, she's blonde, she's white, and she secretly hates the Jews. Or is Andrew Anglin, the founder of the now underground white supremacist blog The Daily Stormer, more elegantly put it, quote, The entire alt-right patiently awaits the day when we can lay down our swords and kneel before her throne, as she commands us to go forth and slaughter the subhuman enemies of the Aryan race. Last year, he wrote that, quote, it's an established fact that Taylor Swift is secretly a Nazi and is simply waiting for the time when Donald Trump makes it safe for her to come out and announce her Aryan agenda to the world. Mitchell Sunderland is a senior staff writer at Vice. He first broke the story of Taylor Swift's fascist following in 2016 after learning about it while interviewing alt-right provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos at the Grove Mall in Los Angeles. It's a very kind of poppy L.A. high-end mall. So we were in Neiman's, and he ran into a girl who is now a prominent alt-right figure in Canada, and Taylor Swift came on. And she started singing along. I see I'm too late. Got nothing in my brain. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. I go on too many dates. <laughs> and I looked into it, and there were kind of two things going on. Last year, I covered CPAC and the Republican National Convention. And I noticed that you had all these young female Republicans in beige shoes dancing and singing at Taylor Swift. That was like what I heard everywhere. I also noticed that these neo-Nazi websites had become obsessed with her as kind of like their ideal woman because she's blonde, she's blue-eyed, she's skinny. And she conveys a sense of innocence. Just before this interview, I watched my first Taylor Swift videos and I thought she was cute as a button. And I think that's part of the reason she 
appeal to them because they do talk about virgins all the time on those sites. The political climate has really intensified since you first reported this Taylor Swift white supremacist conjunction. First, there was the Pulse nightclub shooting and then the election of Donald Trump and the rise of the alt-right in Charlottesville. Around Pulse, I thought it was strange that Taylor Swift wasn't saying anything because all these other celebrities were... So I emailed her representative and I said, we're writing an article about this. Do you have comment? And then right before our article went up, she finally said something. The handwritten note she wrote a couple of days after the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting read, As you bury your loved ones this week, please know that there are millions of us sending you love and our deepest sympathy in the face of this unthinkable and devastating tragedy. Some people wouldn't cut her slack for the delay, I guess. I think it was because since Lady Gaga did the Fame Monster, which was her second album in 2009, she started calling her fans little monsters. And since then, there's Rihanna's Navy, which Rihanna calls her fans the Navy. The Beehive is Beyonce's. And then Taylor Swift has her Swifties. Now, when something happens like this, these fan groups mobilize and demand public statements. You did not see this before Twitter. And since Charlottesville, people have asked her two things. One, they've asked her to denounce Nazis. Wouldn't be controversial to denounce Nazis. And then the other thing is to denounce Trump. She did start as a country western singer, and she may be concerned about alienating a substantial part of her fan base. Yes, and although her music has sonically changed, because Look What You Made Me Do does not sound anything like the song is on Fearless, like Love Story. We were both young when I first saw you. I closed my eyes and the flashbacks. But the the lyrics have similar subject matter. So I think she she has carried her original audience with her. She comes out and says, I denounce these Nazis. Even most mainstream conservatives want nothing to do with Nazis. If she comes out and denounces Trump, to take you back to CPAC in the Republican National Convention where her shake it off everywhere, she would have that audience upset. And if you look at where the 1989 tour played, it mostly played in big arenas in the South and in suburbs, which are areas that Trump won. So I think those numbers would play into it. There's also the history of what happened to the Dixie Chicks when they denounced mm-hmm. George W. Bush. It was London, 2003, when Natalie decided to speak her mind about the impending invasion of Iraq. We're ashamed the president of the United States is from Texas. Bush lovers steamrolled piles of CDs. Remember that? Their music was banned from the airwaves. Right-wing talkers called them Dixie sluts and Saddam's angels. A lot of journalists and music critics have said she's had a lot of bad PR lately. Oh, look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Look what you just made me do. Look what you just made me do. However, this song is doing fantastic on the Billboard charts, and then also 1989 sold more than Lemonade. So I think she's a savvy marketer. What's Swift's response been to the attention that she's gotten from the alt-right? Anything at all? Silence. On Nazi sites, they view any silence as approval. To be fair, it's not just neo-Nazis who seem to find much to comment on in Taylor Swift, she's also been accused of evincing a nostalgia for a time of explicit white dominance, you know, the colonial period in Africa. BuzzFeed and Jezebel, with one of the 1989 music videos that came out, it looked like it was set in Africa, 
And so she got critiques from them for that. Her music videos have been cited as appropriating Black culture, the video for Shake It Off. She seems to borrow from everyone and anyone, which creates an opportunity for would-be cultural critics to pull a strand from here and there and weave whatever fabric they choose from it. It's impossible to know why she's making those choices. However, she has a history of being accused for this and not commenting, making everyone then obsess over what is going on and why she's doing it. People can take whatever they like from her silence, and she's giving them the power to do that. So I have spoken to Republican sources who are mainstream Republicans, the kind of people who would have voted for Rubio in the primary, and they have said that they think she's a Republican because of her silence. Critical pieces that were written in BuzzFeed or even The New Yorker, they have taken her silence as saying that she's not supporting women and she's approving Trump. If you look at a lot of the pieces that are being written about pop culture, I think things have gotten really heated lately. So I think people want her to take a side. Mitchell, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Mitchell Sunderland is a senior staff writer at Vice. While Taylor Swift remains silent in the face of neo-Nazi projections, others have taken a different tack. When the Unite the Right protest happened in Charlottesville earlier this summer, commentators were quick to note the theatrical props wielded by the protesters. It's always become one of the most searing images from this weekend's protests in Charlottesville. White nationalists carrying tiki torches as they marched through the streets. Most had clubs, helmets, and shields with white supremacist insignia. In fact, these icons were largely medieval in nature and oft seen in white supremacist events, ads, and public statements. A village in Hungary which has introduced a bylaw aimed at making it difficult for Muslims and gay people to live there is being advertised in the UK as a place to move to in order to escape multiculturalism and Islam. The group advertising it is called Knights Templar International, which has links to... You can clearly see from their imagery, they're really harking back to the Crusades when the official Knights Templar, an offshoot of the Catholic Church, fought Muslim armies for control of Jerusalem. Yes, neo-Nazis and other alt-right adherents live in a Middle Ages of the mind. And that's awkward indeed for medievalists, academics and experts who study the Middle Ages. David M. Perry is a columnist for Pacific Standard and a former professor of medieval history at Dominican University. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So how are we seeing this love of the Middle Ages playing out? There are really two different kinds of things going on, and one is explicit and really terrifying, and one is more subtle, and we have to confront both of them. So the explicit one is people are literally dressing up in medieval costumes or putting Templar shields or a shield of the Holy Roman Empire, or in Europe at anti-immigrant rallies, they're actually donning full medieval gear. There are people pretending to be Vikings but preaching white supremacy. We saw marchers in Charlottesville holding up signs of the uh, Holy Roman Empire and the Knights Templar. What's the deal with the Knights Templar? The Nazis love the Crusades. They love this idea of the Crusades as a kind of lost cause. The idea that the Crusades were a romantic mission to save Christendom from the bad Muslims and that it lost, but they could have won, and let's sort of celebrate that. You also mentioned things that were more subtle. I've spent a lot of time looking at right-wing websites, just kind of tracking the way that they were talking about the Middle Ages. 
I came across one day a kind of pin board in a discussion thread of just hundreds of medieval castles. And they weren't within text that said, I'm a neo-Nazi and this is why I like castles. They were just saying castles are cool. They're looking for cultural reinforcement of their ideology. And any time, whether it's pictures of castles or The Hobbit or, as you were talking about, Taylor Swift, that you set up a kind of empty space, they're eager to project their ideology onto that space. Okay, the empty space. What do you mean by that? If I just stick up images of castles or images of crusaders or, in general, just kind of teach the Middle Ages as a cool, kind of distant, maybe some precedent sort of forming history, and I don't explicitly in my classroom talk about white supremacist appropriation of the Middle Ages, this white supremacist idea that the Middle Ages were pure, Christian, isolated, hostile to the other, as opposed to Middle Ages that are messy and complicated and involve lots of conflict but lots of coexistence. If I just let it be this fantasy, if I don't directly counter it, then I'm allowing the Nazis to project. And we kind of saw this in real time during the Charlottesville story. There was one young man from the University of Nevada, Reno, who was filmed shouting and holding a tiki torch. And when that picture went around, classmates of his on Twitter said, oh, my God, it's that guy from my medieval history class. And I'm thinking, how many guys in my medieval history class have been like him? Did I refute him? Did I prepare his classmates to refute him when he gets creepy about race after class and I don't even know about it? Holy cow. So now we can't avoid what's going on in our streets, even in medieval history class. And honestly, we never could. Many people would like to believe that it's so distant from modern events. Can't we just not talk about it in this case? And, and the answer is really no. You wrote that white supremacists explicitly celebrate Europe in the Middle Ages because they imagine it was a pure white Christian place organized wholesomely around military resistance to outside, non-white, non-Christian forces. They have been working on this narrative, in some sense, since the Middle Ages. There has been a vision of a Christian past as pure and barbaric and resilient and masculine, ready to explode on the world in a kind of precursor to what we might think of as manifest destiny. So you're suggesting that the field has left itself open to this kind of appropriation. I think it has, though I want to say that the field is really coming around very quickly and very powerfully, particularly since Charlottesville. The Medieval Academy of America wrote a very powerful statement focusing not only on the appropriation but on the problems within our own field. And some people have been working on this for years, people who have written dissertations on it, people who maintain social websites. In particular, medievalists of color have been working very hard to make this argument at Medieval POC, maintains a Twitter and a Tumblr account, and all that she does really is share images of people of color in medieval and Renaissance art and say, hey, it was not the pure white dream that you thought it was. And she gets an enormous amount of harassment just for saying there were people of color in the Middle Ages because that challenges this idea of a pure white past. Haven't the fascists through the 20th century fetishized the Middle Ages? Couldn't you have seen this coming? We did see it coming. Hitler also loved the Middle Ages. But I think those of us who weren't working on things that were explicitly about race, if we didn't study anti-Jewish polemic or the Crusades or other places in which the contemporary relevancies are explicit, it was easy to forget. 
And what's been happening in white supremacist circles, at least as near as I can tell, is that like all other subgroups, they have found each other through the internet. They have intensified their narratives. They have collected and shared their ideas in ways that might not have happened before. So that that one lone white supremacist sitting in the University of Nevada classroom is in contact across America and across the world. The profession has been slow to catch up to that. Is there any risk in taking a stand against the neo-Nazi appropriation of the Middle Ages? I mean, it can't hurt your prospects for tenure to tell fascists to take a hike, can it? You can come out against Nazis pretty comfortably. But then when you start expanding it to talk about racism more generally, you can very quickly find yourself in troubled waters. We have seen lots of adjunct professors and part-timers and untenured professors be targeted I guess what I really want to say is that the people who are tenured and the people who are secure need to do a lot of the heavy lifting here. So what should we take away from the Middle Ages? I would like people to see a world in which we never are truly isolated. Stuff moves and ideas move. If we just let history be more messy and try not to graft any ideology, even positive ones, even the idea that history is always moving in the direction of progress or liberal democracy, I think we'll do a lot better. You know, when you said we're never isolated, it made me think a little bit of that unified theory of time, that we're not isolated from all others on this planet, but we're also theoretically, not isolated from other eras. Maybe none of these eras ever really goes away. I'm a little more comfortable with literature than with general theories of time. And so let's think about Faulkner, right, saying the past is never dead. It's not even past. I think that we're in a moment in which the power of the past to shape how we understand the world around us, that's very visible in this moment of extremes, extremes in political narratives, new explosions of violence, in the movements of peoples, and even the movement of wind and weather and fire, that we have long forces of human and otherwise acting on us at all times. One of the roles of the historian is to make sure that the past stays with us and that we understand that it's messy and we understand that it shapes what we do. And I think in America, there has often been an attempt to pretend that wasn't true, to pretend that the past is not with us or only the good past, that we can just keep the parts of the past we like. And it never really works that way. David, thank you very much. It has been such a pleasure talking to you. David M. Perry is a columnist for Pacific Standard and a former professor of medieval history at Dominican University. Don't say I didn't, say I didn't warn ya. Coming up, how does boredom sound to you? Yeah, me too. But you know, we could be wrong about that. This is On the Media. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Okay. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Our phones? Show me two dots. <gasps> no, you play? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad, Brooke. Um, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Recently in the studio with Manoush Zamarodi, host of the WNYC podcast Note to Self, and author of the new book, Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing Out Can Unlock Your Most Productive and Creative Self. In it, she confessed to an addictive devotion to a game called Two Dots. I've gotten to a level where there are these little dots turn into cocoons with butterflies that come out of them, and when they come out, they, like, crack open, like, these games, played on the phone, are among the countless digital diversions sucking the downtime out of our lives. The time we need, she says, to be bored. She thinks she's licked the problem, mostly. So I shared my problem, too. Oh, what's your thing? Words with friends. Oh, I knew you were into this. I'm currently in games with five different people. Sometimes it's eight. It's how I keep contact with my daughter who lives in L.A. But that's nice. My friend on the Upper West Side in the uh, Words <laughs> with Friends chat function told me that his mother had died. A chat function of Words yeah. with Friends? Yeah. Bored and Brilliant is her assessment of a challenge taken up by 20,000 volunteers to see if a few tweaks, one each day for a week, could change the way we manage our devices to create more time for boredom and thereby make the world a better place. Honestly, I had trouble buying that. Oh, okay. Can I try and convince you? Yeah. So here's my thinking. And I will say, listeners really pushed back. When we announced the original project, they were like, come on, do you have to use the word boredom? Can't you use something more positive, like daydreaming? And I said, absolutely not, because the key thing here is that boredom doesn't feel good. It doesn't. As you wrote in the book, novelty helps us release dopamine, which is the mother of invention yes. and pleasurable. But it's also been found that you can exhaust your supply of dopamine. So I understand the risk of constantly trying to relieve our boredom on stupid things because we're wasting our yes. dopamine. But I was not as shocked as I thought I would be to find out that people would administer shocks to themselves. <laughs> you cite this study in the yeah, book UVA. just to relieve boredom. So I know boredom feels bad. I feel like my entire life has been a flight from boredom. Yes. I'm still not convinced mm. of the value of boredom. So, Brooke, your flight from boredom is the reason why you host on the media right now and that you are doing groundbreaking work and that let you have won a Peabody. Let me, come on, let me quell <laughs> a little bit about you. But the point being that boredom is the trigger to get you to get up off your butt and make a change in your life or someone else's life. You know, you've seen that when you're bored... I screw up. I self-sabotage. But you also plot an escape don't you? That's the key here, right? Now, let's say you didn't have to plot an escape. You didn't need to make a big life change. You could just start putting stuff on Instagram instead. My argument is that we have to build back the muscle. You don't get served the happiness on a platter. You got to go through a, a lot of pain and discomfort to get to the good part of your brain. And I think we've lost the patience to make it through that 
to get to the part where we start to make new ideas, ways to solve problems for ourselves, our families, maybe even society at large. All that said, the science of daydreaming, as you note in the book, is incredibly new. Very. I mean, we are at an amazing point in neuroscience. What do we know? So what happens when you're bored or when you're doing something like folding the laundry, a repetitive action is your brain ignites a network called the default mode. Scientists call it the imagination network. Right. And you said in your book that the default mode or daydreaming occupies 50 percent of our waking hours. So then why aren't we all brilliant My hypothesis is that for most of us, actually, that 50% number has declined precipitously. I mean, I've had my smartphone now for, I think, seven years. I don't think I'm spending 50% in the default mode because what I'm doing is filling every single crack in my day, waiting for the coffee, waiting for the subway. I mean, the bathroom, Brooke, like, you know, every single crack in our day is now filled with something we are specifically paying attention to, whether it's refreshing the headlines or answering email or playing my damn game two dots. It's that spacing out time that we have now sort of gotten rid of. And I think that that's a dangerous thing. Why? This sense of always having something to do, defining productivity as being a responsive, accessible person in the world has eaten into our ability to think in the longer term, to make meaning of all the things that we read all day long, that we listen to all day long, that we respond reflexively all day long, and also something called autobiographical planning, which happens, again, back in that default mode of your brain, which is looking back at your life, taking note of the highs and the lows, building a personal narrative. What is the story of my life and where do I want it to go? Looking into the future, setting goals and then figuring out the steps you need to take to get to those goals, to really think longer term. I mean, it makes complete sense that if you're on a screen all the time, you're not doing that autobiographical planning. And what I found most exciting about the project that we did, it was the classrooms. Kids who were saying to me, God, I've never felt this before. I was like, never felt what? Like, boredom? (laughs) That's kind of amazing, like, that you've never had to. Because if you're 17 years old, you've always had a smartphone since you've been sort of an autonomous being. You know, after we did this week of challenges, what the teacher said he saw at the end of the week, which sounds so simple, is more eye contact. And a realization among his students about how much of their lives are mediated by screens. Okay, now let's talk about the phone. There's Mm. an analogy you use a lot in the book. It's like a baby. Mm. Yes, they're sweet. They're also incredibly time-consuming and want your attention all the time. And the minute you leave them alone, they squawk and yell and drive you absolutely bananas. And that is the metaphor that my listeners kept coming back to me over and over again. But the other metaphor that they gave was that their phone was acting as a pacifier for them. That whenever they were like, I'm lonely, it was like, I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. Or, "Uh, I don't know what this means. I'm here for you. That it was this way of sort of soothing them. And the phone knows you kind of like your mom knows you. All your likes and dislikes and where you're about to go and where you've been and who your friends are, and it knows. And I think some people are like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. That means that I'm dependent on this thing. Can we turn it back into the tool that I paid for, cool hardware that it was meant to be, as opposed to this sort of living object that is constantly nudging me and needs me. So tell me about the challenges 
that are the heart of this book. (laughs) So challenge number one sounds very simple. Observe your own behavior. What we found is that if asked to estimate how many times a day we pick up our phone just for a quick check, people are like, I don't know, like five, ten times a day. But we proved by partnering with apps that actually measured this that people were checking their phones between 60 and 100 times a day. So day one is establishing your own baseline. You can either do it manually if that's the way you decide to go. But there is an app that can measure it. There are apps. Actually, we have an app um, that we've partnered with that has a bored and brilliant program within the app. So if you really want somebody to hold your hand, they're going to do it. It's called Moment. What did you discover from day one? The original group of 20,000 people, they were spending two to three hours a day on their phones between 60 to 90 pickups per day. Day two. So day two is out of reach. The idea being that put your phone somewhere, whether it's your pocket or your bag, while you are in transit. While you're moving through the world, actually be aware to what is around you or don't be aware and let your brain go where it wants to. Okay, day three. Day three is called a photo-free day. For a lot of younger people who are primarily communicating through photos, whether that's Instagram or Snapchat, this is a big deal. That completely changes the way not only that they use their phone that day, but the way that they interact with their friends and the way that they are a person in the world. Right. This is something I got an inkling of from your book. Yeah. Pictures can take the place of words in social media Tech writer Om Malik wrote, Going forward, the real value creation will come from stitching together photos as a fabric. It is a visual rather than a verbal representation of the world. It's not just, here's my breakfast. It's sort of, here's my life. Obviously, something that I do see a lot from the fact that I go to museums a lot, drives my husband crazy, is that people do not see the art that they're standing in front of uh, for more than three seconds before they're shooting it, or sometimes they're actually seeing it through their screens. Here they are marking the moment without experiencing it. So what you've been sensing has actually been studied. Uh, There's a professor who calls it the photo-taking impairment effect. The idea being that when you are using your phone to mark the moment, as you say, you are actually outsourcing your memory to your phone. Now, this can be great if you're like, wait, what parking lot or, you know, number? Oh, we're in D13. Let's take a picture of it so we don't have to remember that. But it's not so great where the whole point is to have an experience seep into your mind. But there is a great way to enhance your memory by using your phone. Like zoom in on a detail. Really think about what is worthy of zooming into. And that actually helps you remember it. That's so interesting. I know. But it's these little tweaks that you can do that, you know, your phone takes great pictures. And I'm so happy about that. But if you can just do these tiny little tweaks to your life that makes things just a little bit better. Day four. Day four, listeners said that that was the hardest day. Delete that app. Take the app that is driving you bonkers bananas off your phone. So I want to tell you the story of Liam, who two years ago, he decided not only was he taking uh, one app off his phone, he went crazy and took half a dozen apps off his phone. And we just heard from Liam last week who told us that he's kept them off his phone for the last two and a half years because he decided that the change it made, he was mostly social media he took off his phone, the change that he felt in his life was so profound that he couldn't imagine going back. 
And he said, you know, I realized like nine times out of 10 when I went on Facebook, I started to feel bad about my own life. And I didn't feel that way when I wasn't on it. So why do I need this in my life? But it's interesting. What he's decided to do is he still is on Facebook, but he does it on his home computer. And he knows he'll only sit down and do it for like 20 to 30 minutes. And he moves on with his day. Here's something funny. Mm. Um I hardly ever go on Facebook. For me, Facebook is like going into a crowded room. I get so anxious, and yet I never comment. I never look at stuff, and I realized I just can't negotiate the space. And after finishing your book yesterday, I deactivated. Oh, <gasps> you did? <laughs> your account? The yeah. whole account? The whole account. <gasps> oh, my God, Brooke. Anyway, moving on. Wow. Day five. Day five, um, take a vacation. This speaks to that American way of working, which is that we're always available. We're always accessible. Ping me anytime. I'll get right back to you. When actually, if you have a report to write or you are tasked with finding uh, a solution to a problem at work, that is not the way to do it. The average worker switches tasks on their computer 566 times a day. How do you get the deep work done if you're doing that? So that was something I wanted to ask you. Mm. You said that people's attentions are shifted every 45 seconds. Yeah. And when they aren't being interrupted at that rate, they interrupt themselves. That's my favorite. Okay, this is great. So if you have an hour of being consistently interrupted, whether it's pings or people stopping by your desk or whatever it might be, the next hour, even if nothing externally interrupts you, you will begin to interrupt your own work, which just goes to show once you get into the cycle, it becomes vicious. So vacation. Vacation. Set an out-of-office response. Set the expectations of the people on the other side that you are not available, whether it's an hour, a day, a week, whatever it needs to be. And I had a lot of people say, actually, I work in social media. What am I supposed to do now? To which I'm saying, outsource it to another colleague just for an hour or you have a stomach virus. That's a big lesson from the book. Nobody ultimately decides your time but you. Day six. Day six. Observe something else. Look for the uninventable details. Rita King is someone I interviewed. She's a futurist who works with movie companies to figure out, you know, 100 years from now, what will society look at? And she's always saying that it's the little details. You know, what does a the sleeve of a sweater look like 100 years from now? That's how you spark your imagination. In the default mode, one of the other things we do is we look at someone and we imagine what they might be thinking. And that's how we understand our fellow human beings. So empathy, imagination, autobiography, construction, future projection of yourself, of the cuff of a sweater, of the world. All of those things nudge out that deeply disgusting feeling of boredom. <laughs> and if you make it too easy, you won't go there. That's the ultimate lesson, right? Yeah. Day seven. Day seven sounds ridiculous on paper, but we have proof that it works. We ask you to take something that's been bugging you, like whether it's a relationship or a feeling about yourself, something that you don't share it with anyone, just you know it. Put it aside and then watch a pot of water come to boil. Watch yes. water boil. Yes, watch water boil. Do something that just takes patience and time. 
you're definitely going to space out when this happens, guaranteed. And then sit down and write all the ideas that come to mind. What if they don't come? I I feel pretty confident. I have 20,000 people who've tested a lot of things with me. And if they don't come, that's okay. Good ideas take time. They require patience. When you talk about how you live your life or how you create a state in which you can be creative, ultimately, you're going to talk about things that have a spiritual dimension. You talk about the value of clearing your head, like transcendental meditation, as opposed to the value of directed meditation. You talk about some of the observations of Buddhists that, as far as many of them are concerned, there's no difference between the digital world and the real world. If there's a problem, it's with you, right? I want to decide how my life is lived, to turn my phone from being a taskmaster back into a tool that helps me live the life that I want to live. The one place where we are now alone or have privacy or can think a thought that maybe we should keep to ourselves and work a little harder on is our brains. I think of this exercise that I did with some college students where at the end I asked them to write themselves a note, just tell themselves something. And they wrote it down the paper and I was like, now destroy it and never tell anyone what you wrote. And they looked horrified. They're like, what? I can't tell anyone? I was like, no, only you know. This idea that if you make something or you think something that's good, that you absolutely have to share it, that your opinion must be disseminated, has become endemic. And I think we need to go back to a place where we're okay with letting ourselves know and then saying, actually, not good enough. Let's work harder on it. It's not ready for the world yet. What do you have in there? Here. <gasps> have a, a fig. fig. <laughs> oh, these are beautiful. They're plump. Mm. They look good on Instagram. <laughs> Manoush, thank you so much. Brooke Gladstone, thank you. Her book is called Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing Out Can Unlock Your Most Productive and Creative Self. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Micah Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan and Monique Laborde, and our show was edited by me. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer, Jim Schachter's WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.